everybody. This is Phil Town. This is Danielle Town. And welcome to Invested, the podcast about how you're going to get it together and be able to retire sooner than you think. How you're going to get it together. <laughs> or retire at all for many of you out there. And this is, of course, not a laughing matter. I was just doing an analysis of uh, a company that I lost a pretty significant amount of money on just recently, which was a company we talked about a long time ago in the... Uh, in the podcast that I really thought <clears throat> was going to be a fantastic investment. And I think it's really, really important for everybody who's listening to understand, um, you know, the obvious, which is that there's risk in investing, investing. But more importantly, that things can go wrong, which are just outside the envelope of, of what you know and what you expect. And it's one of the reasons that we insist so much on on a couple of things. Number one, really sticking with the rules that we put out about investing is just gigantically important. And I just got, you know, I just got hammered because um, All right, so I moved let's outside those rules a little bit. What's the name of the company? Okay, the name of the company is Horsehead Holdings. You bought it when? Um, I started buying it, gosh, I don't remember when I started buying it, 2012 roughly. maybe? Roughly, roughly. Okay, 2012-ish. And so, you know, I started buying it when it was at about $11 a share. Um, I, I got into it because I initially saw that Monash Pabrai and Guy Spear, two, two tremendously successful investors, uh, both hedge fund managers, had gotten significant positions in this company. And, um, and so I started doing my homework. You were watching what they were doing and you saw that they bought some of this company called Horsehead Holdings? Yep. So, Had you known anything about it before that? Uh, no. Uh-uh. Had you... So tell me what they do. What's their industry? Well, Horsehead is a, a company that manufactures zinc. And they do it by collecting what are what's called EAF steel dust, which is a toxic dust that's created in this process of making steel, um, which the steel companies like Nucor and so on have to get rid of and it costs them to get rid of it. So what these guys did, what they did at Horsehead, is they created kilns to sort of melt that dust and um, and then make a kind of a zinc slurry that's about 60% zinc. And they paid, like these steel companies would pay them to come and pick up the raw materials. So instead of having to go mine zinc, um, the, like everybody else in the world, these guys simply collected zinc dust, if you will, because zinc is used in steel making and galvanizing steel. So this dust has steel in it, or it has zinc in it. They would melt it and end up with about a 60 to 70% slurry of zinc called uh, whale's oxide. <laughs> and they could sell that, okay? So that was their basic business was to take this whale's oxide um, convert it with another plant into maybe 90% pure zinc. And they would sell that as a kind of a standard low-grade zinc. How did you find all of that out? Oh, well, which is really kind of the point, right, of how we, we do the research. Yeah. Okay, so the first thing so you, is... So you went, you were on, like, Google Focus or some website. You discovered that a couple investors you like were buying this company. Yeah, by the way, we've yeah. got that information now. On Rule One Investing, we're now tracking what uh, gurus that I like are are buying, and this is something that Warren Buffett said a long time ago that 
the very best way to get started is to copy people who already know what they're doing. And interestingly, you know, a few years ago, there was a law created that requires hedge fund managers to publish what they're doing on a quarterly basis if they're managing more than $100 million. So they have to put it out there through what are called 13F filings. And there are now websites like mine that collect these filings and publish them so that you can see what these people are buying and selling on a quarterly basis. So you can go to Guru Focus, you can go to Dataroma. Dataroma is free. Um, you can get on my website um, and, and find this stuff um, under search gurus and up will come all the latest filings for all these guys. So it's a tried and true way to invest. Monash Prabhai um, suggests it is the best way ever. You know, he calls it cloning. And um, and the, the, the thing that makes it so good is that even though you're getting the information three months later, sometimes the stocks are selling for less than they did when the guru started buying them. And uh, sometimes they're selling for more, but it doesn't mean they're they're not on sale. They could easily be on sale. So this is what I would recommend you to do, right, is to go dig on into those filings and look for something you think you can understand. That's what I did. I, I saw Monash and Guy were buying this company. <clears throat> they were spending lots of their money on it, and they were doing it at a price that looked to me like it was on sale. So that's where I started. And then the first thing I did from that point on is to go to the 10K uh, reports that are filed with the SEC by Horsehead, which are available on tons of websites. Again, they're on mine. Um, and you just pull down the 10K. It opens up as a PDF file and you start reading. So the 10K Did you is, read the most recent 10K? Is that where you start? Yeah, that's where I started. And I just worked, I worked through that first 10K. And what I was looking for is, can I understand this business? All right. That's all I wanted to know. Am I capable of understanding this business? Is it simple enough for me? And I discovered right away, this is a really simple business. And then I went back about five years and I read the 10Ks from five years ago, then four years ago, then three years ago, then two, then one, because I wanted to see the flow yeah. of information to the shareholders. You started with the most recent one. You felt like you could understand it. Yep. And then you went back, what, five years? Yep. And then started coming back towards the present. Yep, exactly. That makes, that makes sense. So like you started with the most recent one, got a sense of it. Yep. And then went back to get the history. Yep. Got the history. And then I went over to Seeking Alpha, which is a great website for just random people. About 3,000 analysts and wannabe analysts are writing free analysis of companies on that site. There must be five or 600,000 people, including tons of hedge fund managers, that use it as a resource. And every company you can imagine has something written about it by somebody out there. So I went over there and I put in Horsehead Holdings and came up and found that the symbol was Zinc, Z-I-N-C. And then what I saw in Seeking Alpha was that they had the transcripts of the quarterly meetings, which are phenomenal, because at the quarterly meetings, the company four times a year has a meeting for professional analysts. Um, you know, people from Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan um, are there listening to the CEO and the CFO talk about the company for half an hour. Mm -hmm. And then they ask questions for like half an hour. Mm -hmm. So you can really understand 
what's going on with this business from the questions that these people are asking. And those are on Seeking Alpha as much as you want to listen to them. And you don't even have to listen to them. You can read them, which is great because that's faster for me. And so um, I went there to look for that. And I also went there to look for analysis. And then you just get to look at their reading, the analysis in a reverse uh, um, order of the data was published. So the latest stuff is on top. And what I'm looking for is people who are saying the analysis that this is articles written by people who, for lack of a better word, analyze the company. Analyze the company. And those analysis are going to fall into two categories, long or short. So a long analysis is one which is saying this is a really good company and you should be buying in because it's super cheap. And a short analysis saying this is a really crappy company and you should be selling it or getting out because it's going to have a disaster. Okay, so I read all that analysis and um, it was all almost predominantly positive that the company had a tremendous position in the marketplace. They um, were moving out of a plant in Monica, Pennsylvania, which was an old fashioned plant that had been around a long time that would convert this whale's oxide that they made in their kilns into mostly zinc. And then, um, and they were going to build a new plant that they'd started construction on in 2012 that was going to convert that whale's oxide to 99.9% .9 pure zinc, super high quality zinc and get a premium price. How much industry research did you do? I did a lot. I, I read where does zinc come from? How do they get it? What's it cost? Who are the low cost providers in the world? Um, what are the commodities companies doing with it? Who, who owns them? I dug into it, you know, because I didn't know this industry at all. You know, so I found yeah, it's out interesting. all sorts it's of interesting stuff. It's interesting what you're saying about it because you started with the company instead of with the industry. And yeah. often said to start with the industry and then find a company. Yeah, you could. Um, you can go either way, right? If you find an industry you really like and then dig in on it. But I'm starting with the company because I've already got two great investors that are thinking this is super on sale. So I'm naturally going to start right there. But inevitably, as you read the 10K, you run on to who do we compete with? And you discover, you know, there's Mexican companies, there's Canadian companies, and in particular, there's Chinese companies, all of whom compete in this industry. And, you know, how do they compete and so on? But here's what was really, really cool about this company is that upon the completion of this Mooresboro, North Carolina plant, they were going to become the low cost producer of this super high grade zinc in North America and the second lowest cost producer in the world. And when it comes to a commodity company, that is a, a company that makes a product and you don't really care who made it, you know, like corn, wheat, those are commodities. Gold's a commodity. So zinc's a commodity. Nobody cares where it comes from. It has to meet a certain standard. That's all anybody cares about. In that kind of a business, the low-cost provider of that commodity is king of the world hmm. because the prices in a commodity go up and down like crazy with cycles of business, with cycles of commodity prices, you know, with China competing or not competing. So the prices are going up and down like crazy. And if the prices are going down, you want to be the guy who's still making money after everybody else in the industry is losing money. 
because what they're going to do is shut off their production. They're not going to keep drilling for oil. They're not going to keep mining gold. They're not going to keep digging for zinc unless they can make money. They're not just going to keep doing it because they don't have to employ the miners. They can just say, okay, you're out of work. Go draw unemployment or whatever. And we're shutting down the mine. The zinc will be there tomorrow. Okay. So commodity, that's what's happened in the oil industry recently. So what happens is they know if you're a low cost producer, the prices will come down until people bail out. And then the, the demand, which might be the same, the supply goes down, 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 and pretty soon pricing gets a floor and starts to go back up again. Okay? Yeah. Makes sense? So low-cost producer is huge. And when I saw that these guys would be the low-cost producer in North America, you know, that was the big light bulb right there to why Monesh Babrai and Guy Spear were buying into this company. That's a huge deal. Did you check the price next? I did. Then I took a quick look at the price just to see what the relationship between the value of the company and the price would be when they finished the plant. And so, because the plant was, the management team was saying the plant's going to be done in about a year. So, um, yeah, I checked. Uh, so here's what happened. When that plant reaches full production, the company was going to produce an additional 90 to $110 million of earnings before interest taxes, depreciation, and amortization, which is called EBITDA. So it's like, it's almost kind of a way of saying cash flow. So they were going to add another 90 to $100 million of cash coming through the company. All right. Now, in a mining company, I had to look around and see what mining companies sell for. But typically, they're going to sell for something like about 8 to 10 times that cash flow if things are good. Right? If eight it's a good company. 8 to 10 company. times EBITDA? Yeah. Okay. So at, let's say... And eight, that's really important what you just said, that you looked at the other companies in the industry to yep. find out what was typical. Yep. And that's, I, I know we when we were going through the detailed valuation methods, um, we talked about how you compare things to other companies and, and to make sure that it's in that industry and the PE ratio is in that industry and historical for that industry because different industries will have different normal numbers. Oh yeah, very, very true. So it's important to see what stuff sells for normally, right? You don't want to try to think it's going to sell for some super high price. And in commodity companies, they often sell for some kind of multiple of EBITDA. Um, so in this particular case, and we haven't really talked about that as a valuation technique, but it works out to be kind of like payback time. Basically the same thing. In other words, if you've got $100 million of EBITDA um, every year and you sell it, you sell that company or you buy that company for eight times EBITDA, then you paid $800 million. Right. Mm -hmm. And if you're getting $100 million in EBITDA every year, it turns out that's an eight year payback time. Mm -hmm. So you can kind of see the, it, it, it comes together, it converges these ways of thinking about value. So let's say that we look at this thing and we say, all right, this is eight to 10. So let's call it a nine times 100 plus whatever they were making before. And they were making 30 to 40 before this. And so that shows me this is a 1.3, you know, 1 billion to 1.2, 1.3 billion dollar company in that ballpark someplace. Okay. Okay, cool. Mm -hmm. All right. So when, when the plant is done. When the plant's done. Not yeah. at that moment in 2012. Not at that moment in 2012. So it wasn't selling for that much, right? It was going 
there. It was going on that is in in route to that location. Okay. Um, there were about, about go ahead. There were about fifty million shares of stock, right? So, at a future valuation, right when this plant's completed, at let's call it a billion dollars, that's twenty dollars a share. Hmm. Okay, twenty bucks a share, and it was selling for eleven. Mm-hmm. So, okay, I could see why these guys are headed into this thing. This looks pretty good, all right? Um, not only that, but the plant would increase in its value for every 10 cent increase in the price of zinc. And zinc was at a fairly low price at about 85 cents when I was looking at this and had been as high as $2. So if you, then what I found out was that for every 10 cent increase in the price of zinc, it added um, $20 million of EBITDA, $20 million which times 10 is $200 million of value. So that thing could go up 30 or 40 cents in zinc prices, would add about a billion dollars in value to the company. In other words, this could be a $2 billion company really easily. And instead of $20 a share, it could be $40 a share. So this starts- That's nice in an imaginary world, but the obvious thought is it could also go down. Well, that's the thing though, is that the prices were, at a place where there was, they were at the low reasonable range. In other words, if they go below 85 cents, it doesn't take very long for everybody to get out of business because it costs more than that to produce zinc. Out oh, of so so that they, it was at a pretty like, kind of the floor yeah. of prices? It was flooring up, yeah. It had been as low as 50 cents, but it only goes down there for a brief amount of months. And then everybody shuts their minds down until it gets re, you know, profitable again then they open them back up. So 85 cents was the lower end, $2 was the high end when there was way a much of demand and not enough supply. Um, and it wasn't unreasonable to be thinking about a $1.30 zinc at all, which was up 40 cents, which would add a billion dollars. So this thing definitely could have been a $40 a share stock, no question about it, right? So the range of 20 to 40 was certainly reasonable to consider. And this is what Monesh Prabhai calls a free lottery ticket. You're buying into this company at a price that reflects everything that's going on. The plant isn't built, you know, that's worth, you know, it's worth 500 to 600 million because they're making the, the, the zinc out at Monica, Pennsylvania. And they're making that money, you know, it's making 50, 60 million in EBITDA and it's worth it uh, at the current price. But it could explode. Make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. Okay. So we talked about understanding the company. We talked about the price, but we skipped the middle two. The uh, the moat. What was the moat? Like a low cost? That's right. We didn't actually skip it. We talked about it. The, the moat on this thing was the low cost provider. That's called a price moat. Price and moat. they have it with this plant being built. Okay. okay. So great price moat, which man- leaves us with the management team. And how did you research them? Management research is so difficult. I got to tell you, I haven't solved the problem of researching management. It's one of the reasons that Charlie Munger hedges a little bit about management when he says, yeah, he does. we'd like <laughs> to have. He does. He <laughs> says, we would like to have management with integrity. Yep. <laughs> but you don't know whether people have integrity until they get into trouble. You know, integrity is something that you demonstrate under pressure. You know, so how did you research them? Well, 
all I could do is look at their bona fides. And Jim Hensler's a Princeton grad. He's got the right degrees. You know, he's the CEO. And that's the main guy I'm going to look at, right? Who's had the guy running things? Had he been in other companies that had done well? He's been in this, been in this industry his whole life. Uh, I wouldn't say anybody had done really, really well. But, and here's a red flag. This company had gone bankrupt before. What? Yep. When there was a big turndown in 2000-something, um, commodity companies got into trouble. They'd gone into bankruptcy. And Jim Hensler was selected by the hedge funds that took it over to be this, the new CEO because of his experience. And, and he proceeded to build Wait. a very good company. Why did it go bankrupt before? So if it was in, if it was after 2000, then it was not that much earlier than it had gone bankrupt. Yeah, it had gone bankrupt in the early 2000s um, because of a problem with zinc prices and too much debt. So they stripped the company down of debt got rid of it all, and started over, which makes for a really interesting possibility, right? I guess so. But it also should have been a big red flag. Well, it says to me that zinc prices can go below 85 cents, I guess. Yeah, or that they can load up with too much debt, yeah, these or, companies, yeah, right? Yeah, combination, yeah. Right. So there was a red flag there that I sort of, on hindsight, I would look at much closer next time. Right. So which is what exactly a history of problems staying in business. In other words, one of the critical things that we always teach everybody is be sure you look at the back history of this company and make sure you've got 10 years of solid performance, blah, blah, blah. And I'm going to tell you, I just did not check that box in this particular case as closely as I should. I, I saw the performance, but it could only go back. I mean, the company had been around for you know a long time. It goes clear back to the 1930s. Um, but they did have this problem, and I should have paid more attention to it. It was a red flag. But it wasn't a red flag on this management team. Yeah, that's what I was just about to say. I mean, it sounds like... I, I mean, it's one of those things where you look at it and you're like, oh, I explained it away too easily. But, but I can get how you'd say, like, all right, there's not 10 years of history with this management so I'm just going to look back to when they started. Now, the obvious problem with that is that the Rule 1 system requires 10 years of, of good yep. performance. Yep. So probably a lot of my students wouldn't have made this, wouldn't have made this investment. Um, so looking at the management team, Hensler had the right credentials. He had the right experience. I wouldn't say he had you know, a bunch of big wins behind him or anything like that, but he was solid in the industry. And he had already built a couple of EIF kiln facilities under his management. He did them on time, on budget, and the guy really appeared to be a guy who could handle the plant construction, which was where the risk was in this deal, from my point of view. Yeah. Because once you're the low-cost provider, as long as your debt's not out of line, you're going to be fine when everybody else isn't. So that's how I looked at it back then all right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay so let me just let me wrap up because i don't want to spend more than just this podcast on just this uh, cautionary tale um let me tell you what happened so i kept i, I sort of stockpiled into this thing at 11 ish or so got my basis probably down to about 10 the stock over the next year went up to 21 
Okay. And I sold out at 19 as it started to come back down as they started to have problems with the plant. That red flagged it for me and I exited. Okay? okay. So everything was good. I made a nice profit. Life is good. Okay. Then I kept watching it and the stock price dropped and dropped. And then they came out with a new offering at $12.50. And I thought, you know what? These guys are having problems with this plant. It's creating chaos in the stock market because people hate risk and uncertainty. But everything they're saying about this plant is that they have it under control. Mm-hmm. Okay, so here's where you... There, here's where we start going, uh-huh. Yep, exactly. And so I started coming back in and stockpiling at around 12. And I stockpiled it as it continued down to about 5. Okay. And I got myself a basis of around seven and all was well, you know, and then um, in 2015, in late 2015, and by the way, management was buying stock in September of 2015. Manesh Prabhai was buying stock in, in 2015 at around seven dollars a share. I was feeling very comfortable at seven, right, because this thing had already been at 21. Mm-hmm. So I know the moment they get this plant under control, this is going to 20. So this is like, this is great. I'm excited. I'm buying more because I'm believing management. When management said they have their cash under control, they have the problems under control, everything is good. Well, you either believe them or you don't. If you don't, you're not in this investment. Well, by the way, they're not just like idly announcing this stuff on Twitter. It's in official legal SEC filings that they're announcing this stuff. That's exactly right. It's in official filings and their investment relations people, their vice president of investor relations is telling me personally when I'm talking to him that all is good. Okay. So I'm continuing to stockpile and I got my basis down to about three bucks a share in this thing, which was great. Okay. Except that they were not telling the truth. While they were telling me that all was well, they were fighting uh, a real war in that that they simply weren't telling shareholders. Uh, allegedly, I mean, we don't know. Yeah, allegedly. I mean, it's there's testimony from all kinds of people in court about this stuff to a certain degree, and I'm NDA'd on stuff. I, there's things I I can't tell you, but that I know, and I will tell you for sure that we are going to file a lawsuit 100% for sure against this management team um, because so we let's, think let's, that they uh, lied. Let's speed ahead here. In terms are you of now protecting timeline. me? from? I'm protecting you, yes. Okay, good. Um, we, don't, we don't know what happened, and, uh, and if a lawsuit is filed, then that will be the time at which things are alleged. So <laughs> <laughs> how's that for Pretty the good. Statement? Pretty good. Okay. But so to, let, to, let me to continue to the, the story here. for people who don't know, what happened is that Horse had filed bankruptcy. They did. Right smack out of the blue. And here's what drives me nuts, is that they filed this bankruptcy because they failed to make a $1.5 million payment to a company called Macquarie, to whom they only owed a total. And so because they didn't make the payment, Macquarie could call their entire loan. This is an interest payment on a loan. Yeah. And the loan was only $30 million. Okay, $30 million. If this company was owned by one person, the board of directors would have come to that one person and said, you know, you better find a way to come up with this $30 million because otherwise we're going to have to declare bankruptcy. 
Yeah, but this company was not owned by one person. No, so and as a result, you get into this absolute danger zone where a management team who is not beholden to a single investor starts to look to their own best interest instead of the fiduciary responsibility they have to the shareholders. And so okay. does the board. Allegedly. Allegedly look to that. Yes. God, I don't like that word because I'm telling you, man, a lot of companies do this kind of stuff where you can see it that the, the, the management team starts to take care of themselves. And what happened here is that a company... So what happened here is that the company filed bankruptcy because they did not make oh, this... There's so much more I want to say, Stop. but I won't. So they filed bankruptcy instead of just paying off a $30 million loan. In other words, they could have come to me, Guy Spear, Manesh Prabhai, and said, you guys need to cough up 30 million bucks. Uh, additional capital will give you a rights offering. You can end up owning half of the company for it, whatever, right? Whatever it takes to get you in for whatever. 30 million. I mean, there are many, many options they could have taken. Many. And the one that they chose in their management decision was to file bankruptcy. Which was insane. And that put the shares to what? Like like 12 cents or something? Yeah, they went to basically going down into the pennies. Because what happens in bankruptcy is that it isn't necessarily fair and just. What it is, is an attempt to be fair and just that is heavily weighted toward those who have debt obligations that the company hasn't paid. Equity is, as my lawyer just got telling, done telling me today, as our lawyer said, equity is the guy following the parade after the elephants, just kind of sweeping up the poop. That's where equity's at in the bankruptcy process. And that's not where you want to be. I'll tell you that for sure, because nobody cares about that guy. They just don't. And as a result, the 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 bankruptcy process is designed to simply wipe out equity as a given. It is certainly not designed to do that. It is generally what happens just because of generally it's what happens almost always. Structure. It's certainly not designed. Well, to if you were an alien looking at the bankruptcy process and you saw that 99.9% .9 of the time equity gets wiped out, you would kind of assume that the system was designed to do that, wouldn't you? Uh, no, because then you would be a stupid alien. <laughs> well, I would have decided. Can't look past well, then I'm a stupid alien because I think it was designed happened. to do that. So probably the judges would disagree me, with me. But so here we are as equity, and we so we really thought they, they were they were. Let's get back to what happened in this case. Okay. Um. So they filed bankrupt. They filed Chapter Eleven, which yep. is restructuring, and. We're trying to figure out, you know, how to restructure this company. And you and Guy Spear did what? We filed what are called pro se motions in court. We both went into court, stood on our own two feet without lawyers, and, and told the judge why we were getting screwed by this process and by these companies. And the judge said, you know what? Something I can only stinks. imagine how entertaining that was. It was pretty entertaining, I imagine. So, because we didn't have to act like lawyers. We just acted like guys. So the judge said, yeah, something smells. I'm going to give you an equity committee, which meant that the company was going to pay the legal bills for us to search out what had happened to our billion dollars of value. 
Where but did an it equity go? committee is, is a committee literally to represent the equity. Exactly. There are other kinds of committees in a bankruptcy process, such as a creditor's committee, which represents creditors, obviously, and then there's an equity committee. Now, often there are no equity committees, which is an interesting thing about bankruptcy. Almost but, never. Almost never, which yep. I find fascinating about the bankruptcy process, uh, to your earlier point about the potentially stupid alien. So to the credit of Judge Sanchi, who was the judge in this case, he gave us something that, you know, most judges wouldn't have done probably and gave us a chance. And we finished with that chance about a week and a half ago when he ruled that the the deal that was put forward by the company to take to, the company out of bankruptcy, yeah, exactly. to restructure everything, out of bankruptcy. he accepted that deal and he rejected our contention that we had equity in this deal, that we had equity in this deal meant that the the total value of debt was more than the total value of the business. Which and, is, of course, how it has to be in a bankruptcy. Yeah, but get this. When we went into bankruptcy, this company had $440 million worth of debt, none of which was due except the Macquarie $30 million. By the time we got done with a seven or eight month process, the debt had risen to $650 million. It went up by $210 million in six months, most of which was simply legal fees. It's just like this unbelievable wave of debt happened during the bankruptcy process. The judge ruled that we had $653 million of equity, in his opinion, and there was $650 million of debt, so you lose, boys. Yeah, and that's, that's where it. we are now. And that's where we are now. So whatever happens next will happen next. But um, but I thought that it was an interesting thing that we should talk about, and we should talk about it next time too. Well, let know. me let me just say that that the judge basically ruled that Monash, Guy, and I, and everybody else who put money into this thing were correct in our assessment of the value of the business. This business had over two hundred million dollars of equity, which. Um, even with dilution, you know, it was at least four or five dollars a share. And um, a after all of these bad things had happened, right? Yeah. And nobody doubts that the companies that ended up with this thing and the, and the management team are going to make out like bandits because this plant, when completed, and as, as we found out, basically the plant's going to be completed just fine. It's no big deal. When that gets done, this is going to be a one billion to two billion dollar company. No question about it. And we got stripped of all of that equity by a process that should have never happened. This, this company should have never been in bankruptcy. So what did I learn? I learned number one, that you really can't count on management to do the right thing under pressure. You just don't know how these guys are gonna act because they've never been in that situation before. And if they act in the wrong way, you can end up like we ended up with in this, in this investment. That's number one. Number two, debt kills. Because so, debt is what gave them the opportunity exactly. to file for bankruptcy. Even if it's not a lot of debt, even if it's just 30 million, debt kills because the management team may simply bail out in a panic because it doesn't hurt them. They're still going to run the company. So... You, you, you can't imagine how much more I am thinking debt kills. Now, I always thought it kills, but now I'm really paying attention. And number three is that when you investigate a company, 
you're not going to know for sure about management. You've got to pay attention to the debt. But if you're investing in a company that has to do something new in order to make sure that the real value stays there, that can be a problem. And that was the biggest problem uh, that happened with Horsehead is that a couple of things had to go right. Number one, they had to actually finish this plant. And number two, zinc prices could not just collapse. Oh yeah, I think we didn't even mention that. Zinc prices collapsed right before this interest payment was not made. Yeah, and talk about a lesson in, in commodity prices that I got on this one. I never saw it, neither did anybody else, because zinc was doing fine. Zinc was undersupplied and over-demanded. And of all the commodities that were going down like crazy, which is iron ore, copper, all these other commodities in the world are dropping like a brick. Zinc is going up. All the time we own this investment, zinc is going up. Why? Because demand was, uh, was steady and increasing and supply was dwindling. One big mine after another was going out of business because they ran out of zinc. So we're in a perfect position. So what happens? A huge commodity company named Glencore was in trouble with its bankers because copper prices were dropping like a brick. So they sold the only thing they owned, which was maintaining its value and which they had profits on, which was zinc. And they sold $1.5 billion of zinc into the market all at once. And it dropped zinc prices from a dollar a share to 60 cents virtually overnight. And the result was a panicked bunch of management, a panicked Macquarie lender, a whole bunch of things that just shouldn't have gone wrong that went wrong all at the same time. And here we are, six months later, zinc prices are a buck seven a pound instead of 60 cents. They've almost doubled in six months. The company has no reason to be bankrupt, but it is. And so the, the, the last lesson I learned is that you've got to be sure to diversify across a reasonable number of companies. So this took, we took a big hit on this, but if this had been our only investment, it would have been a complete disaster, right? And I always try to tell people, buy a company as if it's gonna be your only company. This is the only one you're gonna own. Well, if I had bought this for my family as the only company I would own, we would be bankrupt and destitute. So I've gotta got look harder at that just one criteria, and I want you to look harder at that criteria before you buy a company. It's gotta be a company that ain't going bankrupt. Yeah, and it's got to be a company that, ha I mean, I think this is where, I don't think you bought it like this was the only company you were ever going to own because you skipped the 10-year requirement. Well, that's really the only thing you skipped, actually. Yeah, I, I didn't. I, it's still, we've diversified away from it. But, you know, I got to tell you, it's a, it's a real disappointment. I hate it when it happens. And the fact is, you know, we're human and we make um, judgments all the time about what the future is going to be. And, you know, one of the best books in the world that you should read about this kind of stuff is Nicholas Taleb's Black Swan, where, unfortunately, this sort of thing happens more often than it should. <clears throat> and so I'm just doing this one podcast to just tell you, you know, we got to learn how to invest on our own because just diversifying across a bazillion stocks isn't going to get us where we want to go financially. But when you do, you are taking on this market risk, this black swan risk that your company could go through some kind of incredible uh, problems that ultimately result in you losing all of your money in that company. Doesn't happen very often. It's like the second time in my career, 30 some years. And I think the important thing is you did 
it like you would go back and probably do that investment again. That's it's the not, scary thing. There was not <laughs> there were not huge red flags. There were a couple small things which we've pointed out here which I think is really important. But I think if in that position again, I'm not sure I would have said no, 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 this one's an obvious no. I don't think I would have. I would have said that. Yeah, it was it was hitting all the right check boxes. That's for sure. And we had great yeah. people in there with us. And I've gotten to know Guy Spear over all this, uh, this mess. And um, and you know maybe the uh, silver lining on the cloud is that Guy and I have become friends. And and uh, and we'll probably do some investing stuff together. So um, and also I learned that you know this is a great place to be um, to buy the debt cheap in a company that's in trouble like this. <laughs> I may, I may uh, eventually add that to my skill set. Yeah. But um, let's let's wrap up on that note, that somber note. That well, I appreciate you going through it. I think it's really important for all of us to not only look at our successes, but to look very seriously at our failures, even though it's really difficult emotionally. And so, I appreciate you being so um, candid about it. I wish I could be even more candid, but I'm NBA. I know you do. <laughs> Okay, so all right. Thanks everybody for thanks everybody. Um, listening to our last two hiatus podcasts, which we were excited to bring you um, our values ones, and um, and we're glad to be back. And we will be talking to you next week. All thanks right. everybody. Time to go play. See ya. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested the Rule One podcast. If you like this episode, you can always get our show notes and more details and links to the resources we discussed at investedpodcast.com. Also, as long as you're online, head on over to investedpodcast.com slash workshop for details on an upcoming three-day live workshop that I'm hosting. All you gotta do to go is enter the special podcast code stockpile, that's S-T-O-C-K-P-I-L-E, stockpile, into the application form, and you guys can attend for free. So everything discussed on this show is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And it is not to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only. And I really do hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.